This is a new episode of the podcast, Say It As It Is. I am Andreas Rieser. My guest today is Alex Meyer. Alex is a trained hotelier, restaurateur, and tourism expert. He is the co-owner of the Central Plaza Hotel, located in the center of Zurich in Switzerland. The Central Plaza is a six-story hotel with 101 modern rooms. It has a long history of fine hospitality dating back to 1883. Alex is 77 years old and now retired. He is married and has three daughters. Alex, welcome to the show. Well, welcome, Andreas. Okay, so let's just dive into it. Uh, what is it all about when you took over your, your family-owned hotel? all the struggles and challenges you had to face? Well, you see, when I, at the age of seven, I actually decided I wanted to take this hotel over. It was the dream uh, I was working on. And at the day when I actually took over the charge of the hotel, uh, I uh, had a pile of unpaid bills. Uh, it was November. Uh, and uh, I should have uh, had the money to pay my staff. But actually, uh, the cash, there was no cash. So the first step I had to do was to walk up to uh, a bank manager. And uh, at this time, it was still possible. The man looked at my eyes and said, if you take over all responsibility, I will give you 300,000 Swiss francs. And that's what I needed to actually be able to uh, take care of the responsibilities and of the bills and staff I had to pay. Thank you. And that, that was an easy part for you, was it? <laughs> yeah, well, you know, uh, these days, I don't think this would even be possible. And then, uh, you know, when you have no choice, when you are in a situation where uh, you can just try or fail, but without trying, you fail for sure. And with, with trying, you may be successful. So uh, there was no discussion. Is it easy or is it hard? It just had to be done. All right. I understand. Now tell me, how long did you uh, have this job as a hotelier? Uh, well, I actually, my job as a hotelier ended when I was 65. And um, when um, the brother who was by then the main owner decided that I had to retire. Okay. And uh, your brother still takes care of it now? Uh, well, it's actually now his son. But uh, as far as I know, he's still working there. I mean, I decided to just uh, pull out. And uh, I haven't even visited the hotel now for uh, three and a half, half years. Okay, thank you. So now let's jump into to the 60s. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you told me uh, that you were in London, spring 66 till 1968. This what we call the swinging 60s. Uh, I have to say to my younger listeners a short thing about what it's all about. The swinging 60s was a youth-driven cultural revolution that took place in the United Kingdom during the mid to late 60s emphasizing modernity and fun-loving hedonism with swinging London at its center. 
It saw flourishing in art, music, and fashion, and was symbolized by the city's pop and fashion exports like the Beatles, the Rolling Stones, the Kings, the Who, and many more. And you were, you were there within all these big names? Well, you see, uh, at that time, I actually earned seven pounds a week. And my apartment cost me six guineas, so that left me 14 shillings a week. And with 14 shillings, you, can, you can't really make big steps. I could barely feed myself, but I was extremely lucky. Uh, my uh, most important girlfriend there, my first real girlfriend, she was the secretary of rank film manager and controlled 48 cinemas in uh, London. So uh, this gave me the chance to be at the world premieres of uh, Sawn Curtain, Blue Max, Fahrenheit uh, 461 or 2, uh, Palaces of Queen and things like that. And uh, things I would never have uh, had the possibility to actually be in the premiere with all the stars. And then when this uh, great uh, friendship unfortunately ended, um, I had uh, some other uh, lucky co coincidences. For example, when I heard of uh, a great bar, a great uh, place to go in the evening, I would just turn up at that club and ask for the manager and ask the ma tell the manager that I was a receptionist of the Hotel Europe, which is now the Marriott, and uh, before I was actually also working at the Dorchester. And um, so I asked the manager if he would show me the club, and uh, when he showed it to me, I told him I would like to make uh, PR for his place, uh, for my guests, and if he would have some materials for me to give to those guests, and that I wouldn't want to make any... Uh, income out of that, but it would be great to become a free member. And that's how I actually managed to be a free member at the Bagganels, where uh, Scott Walker was at the Moody Blues, or at um, Speakeasy, where Mick Jagger uh, was uh, with uh, his group. I actually danced just next to him, and uh, many other of the best places in uh, London. And on the other hand, there were two great uh, underground clubs, which were the Roundhouse and the Middle of the Earth. And I'm not sure uh, which is the one, the name of the one I very often was. That was next to uh, Tottenham Court Road, just a little bit about 100, 200 yards to the north. In a cellar, there was a club with several rooms and with fantastic music, which I loved a lot but I didn't actually know the name of that group. It was a name uh, which didn't mean anything to me. And it took uh, almost, well, only, only about four years ago, I realized what was the real name of that, that band. It was actually Pink Floyd. But in 96, uh, nobody actually uh, knew that name. And uh, next to me, there were the people uh, smoking pot and others were uh, uh, taking LSD. And uh, the wall on the walls, there were uh, uh, projectors with uh, three velvet um, glass uh, things which turned around. And between the glass parts, there were liquids of different colors. And uh, like drops, uh, those drops were flowing up and down uh, uh, the walls of the club. So that was that part of London. 
And on the other hand, uh, it was really the swinging time of London. Uh, the pill was just invented. And oh. uh, it was a hobby at that time to actually see how many uh, nice girls you could um, meet. And the thing worked like that. I, I actually lived for more than one year in Earl's Court. And uh, the name for Earl's Court at that time was Kangaroo Valley because it was full of uh, girls from mainly Australia, but also Canada. And uh, we used to go to a bar on Friday or Saturday until about quarter past 10. On one side of the bar were all the girls and on the other side of the bar were all the men. And around, well, quarter past 10, the things started to get a little bit nervous and hectic. And every girl and every guy tried to find a, a nice partner. And we would buy a pint of be a can of beer and then uh, meet uh, in somebody's place and have a party. And um, whoever you were with would actually leave again next morning after breakfast. That so those great. were the days at that time, and there was no uh, v, uh, HIV, uh, all those things. I mean, there was, uh, well, uh, the less uh, dangerous things. Uh, and I actually remember that one day, one evening, we were four girls, four friends from Switzerland. We were sitting in a bar, and uh, we all looked a little bit uh, disturbed, a bit nervous. And so I asked one of my friends, what what happened? And he told me, well, you see, I'm not sure if the girl I was with some days ago is pregnant. Mm -hmm. And actually, the next one said, well, same with me. The third said, same with me. And I said, same with me. So we were four guys, actually, at the same time, worried that uh, we uh, could uh, look ahead to uh, getting uh, parents. At the end, only one of us actually uh, had to face the problem, and I think uh, he had found a solution. Okay. You see, uh, times are changing, but some things never change. Huh? <laughs> <laughs> and what, what, what did you make leaving London again after two years? Well, you see, uh, after three years, my father actually used to add three pounds to my income. And without those three pounds, I could not even, uh, well, I had, a, I had a car, a red mini, uh, mini traveler. And um, actually, one little story I have to tell you, I uh, tended to drive a little bit uh, beyond the speed limits. Mm -hmm. And one day, it was really raining on uh, Oxford Street. Two bobbies stopped me. And uh, when I opened the window, they looked at me and said, well, uh, young man, How fast were you driving? And I said, well, uh, I don't really know. And they looked at me and said, listen, you were driving too fast for this car and too fast for the speed limits. And I would, we wouldn't want to actually see a red Mini crashed on some lump pole or somewhere else. So please drive lower. Or another story I also want to share. Uh, when from Earl's Court, I was driving to work at the Dorchester Uh, one morning, I was so late, the bus was actually just passing in front of my door, and I could either go three, uh, 200 yards back or about 400 yards forward to the next station. But that morning, I was so late 
that the bus driver slowed down in front of my house. I could step on the bus and drive to work. And when I uh, went up, when I got up out at Marble Arch, I went up to the driver and said, thank you very much. And the driver opened his window and said, are you awake now? <laughs> so uh, that was London at those days. Wow. You know, and, and the colored, the colored uh, uh, person which actually had to control uh, the, um, if I had a ticket, he looks at me when he passed me and said, uh, sir, today, free ride. So okay. that was London. Wow. Now, when I had to leave London because I just uh, couldn't survive without the three pounds of my father, I had heard that there would be a rock festival in Rome. So uh, when my father asked me, where would you like to continue? What, what other language would you like to learn? I said, well, I'd like to learn to speak better Italian. So I went to Rome, where I had the chance to uh, work at the Hotel Eden, uh, work for the King Constantine and Juan Carlos and uh, Adrian Conan Doyle, John Casavetes and people like that. Mm -hmm. And one day, when I was uh, sitting on uh, the Scalinata de Spagna, there were uh, two guitarists playing, and they played beautifully. There were two carabinieri, actually Italian uh, army police, uh, walked up to them and uh, prohibited them to continue to play. So a man sitting just next to me said in English, but with a strong Italian accent, how sad he was that those uh, guitarists had to leave. So mm -hmm. I asked this man, his name was Roberto Gagliardi, uh, if he would know anything about a rock festival in uh, Rome. And he looked at me and said, yes, I actually know the guy who organizes it. So I got to meet that man, and it was a rock festival which lasted four days with people like Donovan, Nice Move, Camarionti, Fairport Convention, Soft Machine, Brian Ogre, Julie Driscoll, The Birds, The Nice, The Move. Uh, it was just fantastic. And I remember the first time in my life I smoked the joint was actually when the birds were playing live. And I was uh, sitting there uh, waiting to die because I felt so awful. And they played Hey, Mr. Cambrine Man. So that's another uh, of, of many uh, things that happened to me at those days. Thank you, Alex. You're almost making me cry when you talk. <laughs> <laughs> Must have been a fantastic time. So let's move on, Alex. Uh, what's about the meeting with His Holiness, the Dalai Lama? Okay. Uh, actually, uh, working at the hotel at the Central Plaza, I had... Uh, the president of the Tibetans uh, as my food and beverage manager. And uh, when I heard uh, things about the Dalai Lama, I walked up to him and said, please, uh, if ever the Dalai Lama comes back to Zurich, I would like to have him as my guest. So two months later, the Dalai Lama, His Holiness the Dalai Lama, actually stayed at my hotel. And I got asked if I wanted to invite him for tea, which naturally uh, I was very happy to do. And uh, so we sat uh, in a small room in our hotel. Uh, he wanted me to sit on his left side. And he took my right hand in his left hand. 
and with his right hand, he uh, caressed the top of my right hand, which in the beginning uh, for me was uh, a bit strange that a man would actually uh, do this to my hand. But uh, when he stopped after about half an hour uh, and we got up, I was high for the next three days. Uh, I asked him several questions. He didn't actually answer a lot. But what I, the important impression, the important thing I learned at that moment was how one person can change the feelings of another one. Because uh, when I met him, I was extremely nervous. And after we separated, I was just feeling completely relaxed completely in harmony. And I actually saw him another time again. He came back to our hotel. And then I got a chance. He had given me a book about his life. And uh, in that book, I read that when he was 14, he took apart a Rolex watch from the former Dalai Lama, uh, not a very expensive one, just a very normal uh, watch. He took that apart and tried to uh, repair it so I knew that he was interested in watches and seeing how they were repaired. So I took him to the uh, largest uh, sales outlet of Rolex watches in Zurich. And he could actually there see at the um, repair shop how they were taking apart those watches and uh, repaired them, which made him very happy. So I had a chance to actually um, get... Uh, something back to all the things he had done for me great Thank and you. i also learned he always gets up at uh, 4 30 in the morning and then he first uh, meditates and uh, in the evening he goes to bed at seven o'clock okay and did you have any other encounters with him like uh, with the uh, writing letters or emails today uh well no uh, actually uh, I, I saw him once more in uh, Salzburg, uh, but I didn't have any uh, direct meetings with, any, with him anymore. And uh, the Tibetan, which actually organized uh, that meeting at that, uh, that time, I saw him two years ago. He is now the general manager of the Hamburg Hyatt Hotel, which at that time was called to be the best hotels, hotel in uh, Germany. And uh, it may be happy when uh, this uh, Tibetan told me that uh, I had actually helped to give him enough um, self-security to start a career which led him to be channel manager of the height. Thank you. That's great. What's about meeting Lady Maggie Thatcher? Maggie Thatcher, well, at the same time, that I had thought it would be nice to actually meet the Dalai Lama. I thought it would also be great if I would get a chance to meet Maggie Thatcher. And all I actually wanted to tell her was what I thought of what she did for her country, for Europe, but even for this whole planet. And uh, that was just a hope. Well, I was very surprised when... Uh, at the same year, it was 91, uh, in Gstaad, I was invited to a um, champagne uh, by a champagne com company with Clico to um, 
to uh, no Laurent Perrier, I think it was, to uh, the classic music festival. And in the break, during the break, uh, we were uh, with my wife, uh, part of the VIPs. And when we were standing in this uh, small part for the VIPs, suddenly Maggie Thatcher walked in. And my wife said to me, well, no, leave her alone. You will not go and walk up to her now. Uh, uh, leave her alone. Um, so I just thought it would be great if she actually walks up to me. And 20 seconds later, actually with a glass of champagne, she stood next to me. So I said, uh, dear uh, Miss Thatcher, she wasn't lady at that time. I'm so happy to get the, get the chance to tell you how very much I appreciate all you did for uh, your country, for Europe, for this whole planet. And she looked into my eyes and said, but you know, with all, without Ronnie, this all wouldn't have been possible. So that was uh, the meeting I had with her. And actually, when I'm talking in this direction, uh, in Rome, uh, there too, there was uh, I was working at a, as a cashier in the on the rooftop, and a gentleman walked up uh, without a jacket, and uh, the head waiter walked up to him and said, uh, "Well, you have to have a tie, you have to have a jacket when you are here in the summer. It was very hot." And this gentleman looked at him and said, "Look, I was a regular guest at your hotel, but I will not come back." And the name of that person was Sir Adrian Conan Doyle the son of Arthur Conan Doyle, of uh, the man who wrote the, uh, uh, oh, what's the name of the stories? Uh, uh, this famous criminal stories uh, about uh, James Space Bond. War. No. Huh? James Bond. No, no, <laughs> not James Bond. But it was a whole series of criminal stories. Uh, I, if I look in that room, maybe, but it takes too long. No, I may find a book. We know what we mean, but we don't know the names, but it's fine. Yeah, Conan Doyle. Conan Doyle. Conan Doyle. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The famous guy. I will look it's it up a... afterwards. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's, it's Conan Doyle. Then all uh, people that actually know him know what I'm talking about. Okay. That's great. So you have a, really some uh, very good relationships so far. But now I have something personal from you. You said to me, being responsible for his own life, taking ownership, and mm -hmm. that personal integrity is more important to you than your immediate life. What do you mean by that? Well, you see, uh, I had a rather hard youth. I spent four years of my youth in a home for um, difficult youngsters in a special school and uh, away from home. And I was the only one on weekends, usually actually standing on the window uh, because nobody got me home, and which made me very sad. And um, so I felt very sorry for all the things that happened to me uh, because uh, I was, uh, well, you can say the black sheep of the family in the viewpoint of the others. So uh, one day, I realized that actually, if I can see you, if I can see uh, the glass in front of me or whatever, uh, that means that these things must exist to me. Like uh, when uh, the Spaniards actually la landed in uh, Mexico, the guy who actually uh, watched there to see if somebody was coming, 
he didn't see the ships arriving because ships did not exist for him. And uh, whatever does not exist for you, you can't see it. Sometimes maybe you will be walking a street for many times and suddenly you realize something is there which you didn't realize before, which you, did, which you weren't aware of. So I realized that if I can be aware of something, if I can experience something, it must exist for me. And if it exists for me, I must at some time have agreed that this does exist for me. So uh, it's actually a nice excuse to blame somebody else for whatever happens to you. But uh, if you uh, can confront it, if you really look at it, uh, it's not so. Because you couldn't experience it if it wasn't real to you. Great insight. And, uh, uh, well, um, maybe you want to know a little bit more about this part. I mean, I was a man who uh, many, many, many times in my life, in my life, I thought about committing suicide. Because really? I wouldn't know how to confront uh, what had happened and how uh, I could possibly live on. It just uh, somehow didn't make sense. And at the moment when something very hard for me happened, uh, I remember when I had to leave my job from the hotel, I screamed every day in, at house, uh, in my house, and uh, I actually did not see any future. And when I was at the real bottom of my life, I actually met a woman in the in south of Germany, and she looked at me and said, well, look, like... Um, a guy controlling in a TV station all the different programs. I see 20 other possibilities for your life. Mm -hmm. I will just tell you the two extremes. One extreme is you commit suicide. That's okay. The other extreme is to learn not to need appreciation from other people, but Get your happiness from inside of you. Mm -hmm. So I looked at her and said, well, that's a good idea. I will try. And that's actually when I realized that for most of my life, I was prostituting myself. Mm -hmm. I was going out and trying to get people to tell me it's okay, you're good enough. It's okay, you will live if you continue living. And I realized that actually most of us tend to do this. Instead of living their own life, they're trying to live a life which gets appreciated by others. And so, um, well, in a way, they're prostituting their own integrity. Okay. Yeah, and that's why I realized that actually my own integrity is more important than whatever could happen in my life at this very moment. And that's when I started, when, when I look back, I actually realized that this was a goal all my life, and it was also part of many problems I had. But at that time, I was not yet aware how important integrity is, because if, you're not integ uh, if you don't have integrity for yourself, then you are just... Uh, Swimming around, um, it's not really a, worth, a life worth living in my viewpoint. Thank you. Great insight. Really. Thank now, you. 
as I said in the beginning, you are 77 years old and you are an enthusiastic biker. You drove some Harleys and right now a big Indian two wheels. Can you tell me when, how and why did you get involved in it? Okay, so uh, in this year when I had to leave my job, and I was so sad, I actually had uh, spent two weeks of vacation in, uh, in uh, Thailand. And on the very last day when my actually wife and daughters had to leave because they had to go back to work and I had no work anymore, I was with my family on the pool of that hotel and there was only one other guest. So I started to talk to that guest and um, I found out that he was from Zurich, that he was uh, from the same place I was living, and that I, he was just about to go spend two more weeks of vacation in Thailand. And uh, yes, I could join him because the person who initially wanted to be with him had canceled because of uh, some uh, uh, problems, uh, political problems in Thailand. Not as bad as the ones we have right now with, uh, with coronavirus, but uh, they must have been too bad for that guy. So I spent two more weeks with that man and he actually had a Harley. Mm -hmm. And uh, we were biking just with normal smaller bikes in uh, Pattaya. And he showed me that place there. And I started to get more interested in uh, motorbikes. My, bright, my brother had one uh, all his uh, life since he could actually have one when he was 18. And uh, he had to stop when he was 62. And I actually bought my first one. Mm, yeah, well, I bought it actually in 64, but I couldn't drive and I passed my driver's license when I was 65. And since then, now, on the way to pass the driver's license at the, at the red light, I was a little bit, I just went right in front of the red light, passed all the cars. And then another bike who had waited behind three cars passed me again and looked at me and said, young man, you are quite, uh, you're going quite fast for a guy who hasn't even passed his license. And hmm. uh, now uh, by uh, lucky coincidence, uh, two months later on the biker meeting, uh, hmm. quite far away from where I live, uh, it was a Harley meeting, we were asked, who would drive back into what direction? And one guy said, well, I'm driving to Greifensee. And I said, well, I, then I will come with you. And at the gas station at Greifensee, he looked into my face and said, have you realized yet? I'm the one who passed when you were on the way to pass your license. And we became very good friends. And together with him, uh, I actually uh, went down uh, always on the bike, uh, on the right-hand side uh, of Italy, down to Sicily, around Sicily, and on the other side, uh, Bari, back home. And another year, we went uh, up through Denmark, uh, down uh, up to Norway, and then crossed over to um, Sweden. It was just, we spent the last night in Norway, just uh, in a camp uh, which were closed next day because it was getting too cold and back down then uh, through Sweden and back home to Switzerland and uh, three years ago with the same guy but now on an Indian well also also, also Norway and Sweden was actually on the Indian um, 
we went through France, uh, Cherbourg, uh, Ireland, and uh, along the Wild Atlantic Way, uh, up uh, Ireland to, from the most southern part with um, whiskey distillery in Cork, to the most no northern part over to uh, Scotland, to Glasgow, crossed uh, to Edinburgh and went around Scotland, and then back down to Cornwall from the most northern part of England to the most southern part, well, Great Britain, actually, to the most southern part of Great Britain, uh, and back home. So uh, all those years, in 11 years now, I actually um, uh, drove 210,000 kilometers on, um, mm. on that bike. Wow. I also went to, to, this year I was, for example, on one week, uh, we did uh, 4,000 kilometers to Romania to visit friends and back. And uh, the people with me, they thought, uh, well, if that you can still do this in your age, you must be in pretty good shape. And that I am, I think. Yeah, I can admit fully. By the way, Canon Doyle has something to do with uh, Sherlock Holmes, maybe. Yeah, yeah, that was actually Sherlock Holmes. Right, okay. So let, let me just, for the end, change the topic. As I said before, you are a trained hotelier restaurateur. And uh, in this time of COVID-19, what advice would you give to today's hotelier to keep his business going? Okay, I would give him the advice that I took when I, you see, I completely had to rebuild our hotel because we had uh, the ways for my staff were so long that I needed too much staff and staff is the most expensive part in a hotel. So I thought, what can I do to be successful? And I decided that uh, if I manage to have uh, the best women of town in my bars, I will have the set with them the secretaries who actually book the hotel rooms, and I will have all the men which will also go to my hotel. So uh, I decided if I have a waterfall, if I have uh, many plants, if I have a good piano player, uh, I may be successful. And we actually turned out to have uh, the most successful bar in the whole part, as German-speaking part of Switzerland. And our hotel did uh, quite well. I remember one, uh, one piano player from Canada. She only played once in a bar in Europe. It was a very shy, blonde Canadian girl, which I liked. But she wouldn't come back next year. She came back 10 years later and then said on the radio that her career actually started at our hotel. And that's um, Diana Kroll, which is now a world star. Wow. Or I also at the hotel, I had um, Julian Lennon, I had Sting. Uh, wow. In the old hotel, we still had the Emerson Lake and Palmer, the roadies. And uh, it's just fun to be a hotelier, but you never know in the morning what will happen during the day. And when at the, at, in the evening you go home tired, you wonder, what did I do all day? But usually uh, you re will remember that you managed to make a couple of people a little bit happier uh, than when they arrived. And that were actually the three goals I had. One was a woman alone should feel at ease 24 hours a day, also alone. 
she should be able to meet other people if she wants. And should, she should feel better when she leaves, be in a better mood when she leaves than the mood she was in when she arrived. And I think those were the three things that made my hotel and my bars so successful. Uh, we sold more champagne than all the strip places in the German-speaking part of Switzerland. It was about 100 bottles a day. Thank you. Well, that's, that's for some very good closing words from you, Alex. Uh, thank you very much for this interview. And I would like to end with the following epilogue. When Alex and I first met a few months ago, we also talked about painting and art. I mentioned that I own a reproduction of a painting for over 20 years, the original of which was by Gottfried Helnwein. The work is an adaption of Edward Hopper's Night Hawks from 1942. Alex only said laconically that he himself had commissioned this work from Helnwein and that he was in possession of the original. There are really no coincidences. We are all connected, even if we have occasionally forgotten that we are. Thank you so much, Alex. Can, can I just add one little thing? Of course. Which I very often think of. When you are lying on the floor, you have the best view to the stars. That's right. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.